Welcome everyone. What I would like to try to do, hope to be able to do, in this um, short series of talks, is to perhaps extend a little bit some of the lines of inquiry, some of the themes and threads from um, one of the recent series, The Four Circles for Four Circles for Parables of Stone and Light, and the themes of, um, certainly of ethics, would like to extend and explore a little bit uh, that area, that whole domain, uh, as well as uh, opening up or looking at some more possibilities for imaginal practice or what imaginal practice soul-making might make possible for us. Practices. Um, some other questions and reflections on ontology and epistemology, and uh, also on tradition and how we think of path and goal and awakening and all that. But I think I want to start, and it makes most sense to start uh, talking about ontology, but in fact, ontology or questions and explorations of ontology, uh, the theme of ontology, we've woven throughout these talks. But I want to um, start a little bit with that. Ontology is, to, to say what it is, define it very briefly, is ontology is um, actually best for our purposes defined as the views and beliefs we have about what is real and what is not real and what kinds of reality or what kinds of beings, what kinds of being different things have. So a dream has a different kind of reality than uh, what we perceive in waking consciousness, we tend to assume. That's an ontology, it's an ontological view right there. Uh, so the views and beliefs about what is real, what is not real, what kind of reality and being different things have. And... Uh, usually ontology is the word is used in a sort of very philosophical context it's a you know a lot of philosophical systems and sophisticated philosophical analysis and I mean to include all that but the reason I'm defining it as views and beliefs is partly because as I want to um, emphasize again and again is that we're always with an ontology whether we philosophize or not whether we read those kinds of books whether we think in a certain way or wonder in a certain way about what's real or not real, we always have views and beliefs. And conceptual frameworks, conscious or unconscious, operating. So the words view and belief give much more sense of the sort of immediacy and inevitability of ontology in our lives and in our practice, in our experience. And particularly what I want to focus on today is emptiness and ways of and the ways of looking approach. Uh, so, say a few more things about that. The ways of looking approach to emptiness, which is, if you like, the bulk of uh, what's seeing that Fries is devoted to. The ways of looking approach to emptiness is quite unusual as an approach to emptiness and certainly as an approach to Dharma. The whole ways of looking approach to Dharma is quite unusual. Um, but it's also unusual as, as an approach to emptiness. And what I've come to understand is quite easy or quite possible, but actually quite easy and relatively common um, for it to be 
not quite un- understood in the correct way. Now, people, you know, very understandably, bring bring to that paradigm the ways of looking approach. Uh, um, they bring to that paradigm um, perhaps ideas, beliefs, uh, formulations, and frameworks that they've encountered elsewhere, read or heard or, or whatever, um, even within other Buddha Dharma contexts, of course, and they bring uh, all that to to hearing or reading about the ways of looking approach to emptiness. And some of that other stuff comes in so that what they hear or read about the ways of looking approach is actually a little bit um, twisted or shaped or um, shaved even. Um, to conform to the ideas that they already have. It's a very normal human occurrence and human propensity, something we need to be aware of and, and take care of in, in, in any, whatever whatever it is we're talking about or trying to explain or trying to understand. So the ways of looking approach. I've gone into this elsewhere in great detail and recently on the seminars, uh, the online seminars, I think there was one, uh, the second emptiness seminar there in the last series of 10 or 11. And the understanding, there's two key themes. One is ways of looking, that it's, po- I'm not going to go into this now, just mentioning it, that there's ways of looking, that we as human beings can look at things in different way, in a way, in different ways, that we have a range there, possibility of flexibility there, possibility of extending that range. And ways of looking mean the whole... In any moment, how are we relating to something? What ideas, conceptions, assumptions, beliefs, reactions, tendencies, um, likes, dislikes, propensities, emphases, uh, kinds of attention or um, areas of attention, all of that make up, all that together makes up the way of looking in any moment. And we have the possibility as human beings to uh, explore that consciously and really, as I said, extend that range, play with it, discover new ways of looking, develop them, um, etc. So one concept is ways of looking. second concept is fabrication. And one realizes that different ways of looking have different, uh, if you like, amounts and kinds and levels of what we call clinging, wrapped up in them. Clinging is a word that I use very uh, elastically, meaning it means, obviously, um, what it tends to mean to most people, something very gross, really gripping onto something, not wanting to let go, in a very uh, obvious or even dramatic way, all the way down to something really, really subtle. So, um, I mean, I've explained all this before, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail now. Um, But different ways of looking have different amounts, kinds, levels of clinging to them. And that clinging uh, turns out to be extremely important in determining uh, what is fabricated in perception through the way of looking. In other words, a way of looking uh, shapes, forms, fabricates what we then perceive. I look at something in this way, and that means I have that whole relationship with it. I, I see it, perceive it, sense it differently than when I look at it in another way. And one of the key constitu- constituents there 
um, of the way of looking is the clinging, because de dependent on the clinging, the uh, degree of fabrication, not just of how much suffering there is, fabrication of suffering, uh, which of course is a key um, emphasis and inquiry in, in Buddhist practice, not just the fabrication of suffering, but also the fabrication of self, other, world, time, space, the whole show. The whole magic show of perception is dependent on the kinds, amounts, and levels of clinging involved. And so really what the ways of looking approach is, is taking those two ideas, ways of looking and fabrication, um, maybe a third idea, clinging, as we just said, and exploring what that is and what it involves at different levels, what might it involve, and just exploring that and seeing what's possible. What can I understand about fabrication here? How can I extend and develop my ways of looking? What does clinging uh, involve at different levels? And through that, understanding something about the fabricated nature of things, uh, of all things, all phenomena, all experience, all appearance. And this is a very deep, beautiful exploration. And then at a certain point, going even beyond the notion of fabrication, uh, when one sees that time is empty and fabrication is empty and that opens up a whole other level of the inquiry into emptiness. So, very brief summary, I've explained that before, I'm not going to go into it in any more detail, but I want to kind of just pick up on a few of the possible ways it might be misunderstood or incompletely understood. Um, or we could say just fill out the understanding, make, hopefully make certain things a bit more clear. That's possible. Because <clears throat> sometimes uh, it has happened, a few, quite a few times, that someone has been um, quite excited about the whole ways of looking approach and exploring it and found it very valuable. But then they uh, say something or write something that makes it clear that they haven't really understood the sort of um, radicality of it or the fundamentality of it or just how pervasive it is, uh, how pervasively it applies as an idea. So that what, what can be quite common is for someone to say, I, I, I play with my ways of looking, I, I practice that way, and or even if they're a teacher, I teach ways of looking. But then I tell people, perhaps at the end of the class or the end of the course or whatever it is, now you can rest from ways of looking. Or I do that, but then I just like to uh, I do that in my practice, I play with different ways of looking, I explore it, it's exciting, it's wonderful. But then I like to just be, I just like to rest from any way of looking, etc. So, um, if someone says something like that, it really means they haven't understood that it's impossible to have a moment of consciousness, a moment of perceiving anything, of experiencing anything, a moment of anything appearing without there being a way of looking. We cannot rest from a way of looking. Actually, not even the unfabricated, not even a cessation of perception of feeling is really technically a rest from a way of looking. There, the, anything we uh, see, sense, anything we sense at all, anything we experience at all, is always experienced through a way of looking. Now, of course, we may or may not realize that. We may or not, may, may not be conscious of what the way of looking is at any time. We may or may not be deliberately playing with the way of looking, but there is always a way of looking. So it's not possible to uh, let go of way of looking. Now this isn't just a little 
you know, pernickety sort of point, because if one doesn't understand that, one actually has undermined the whole structure of the ways of looking approach. It can no longer function in a profoundly and widely liberative, uh, liberating way. Um, if one one has just converted the phrase ways of looking to ways of practicing, and there's this kind of way of practicing, or this practice and that practice, there's all these, one's just gathered practices, which one might find all oh, very powerful, very helpful, but then there's a time where I'm just resting from all that. And that time of resting for all that assumes, um, in this kind of uh, not quite understanding of the approach, that time of not resting then assumes uh, that there's a possibility of not having a way of looking at any moment. And that has great implications for our understanding of the nature of perception, of fabrication, of reality, of emptiness. It limits it hugely. So that's one uh, one thing that's very, very important. A second thing, um, minor thing, I actually mentioned it the other day in a talk, um, but I'll say it here as well. Um, <clears throat> although it's not possible to rest from a way of looking in any moment of consciousness, it is possible, however, to rest from deliberately practicing a way of looking. Um, so I might be practicing a certain way of looking, Nietzsche or Anatta or fabricated, whatever it is, um, uh, and then I might decide to rest from that. Or I might move from that way of looking, that deliberate way of looking, to practice another way of looking. The important thing is uh, that I cannot rest completely from ways of looking, but also that the it's it's actually important to move between ways of looking and pay attention to what happens when I move between ways of looking. Whether I just um, rest from any deliberate way of looking and then I just fall back into a kind of default, uh, default mode of way of looking, or whether I switch from one deliberate way of looking to another way of looking, it's actually important to see the effects, the changes of um, wrought on perception by uh, by this by changing ways of looking, either to the default one or to another deliberate one. So through the contrast between what I perceive, what I experience, between this way of looking and the other way of looking, the point I was making the other day in a talk was um, this way of practicing insight meditation based on based on ways of looking is not so dependent on um, keep the continuity going. Okay, 18, maybe 20 hours a day of continuous mindfulness. And through that, the mindfulness accumulates a kind of intensity and pervasiveness which allows it to um, see reality as it is or pierce through illusion to see reality. Here, we actually need to rest from ways of looking at times, from deliberate ways of looking, excuse me, um, or, or or change them in order to see the contrast, because it's the contrast, it's seeing the contrast, the differences, as I said, wrought in perception by different ways of looking that that bring me the insight. Or connected to that, or a modification of that. Sometimes you hear or read someone 
you know, maybe not using the language of ways of looking, maybe using the language of lenses and the lens of anatta, uh, seeing things as not me, not mine, or the lens of impermanence. And they're using that kind of flexibility of ways of looking with a slightly different language. But then they drop back into talking about being with what is, or the way things really are. And what they mean, and it's clear that what they mean by the way things really are, is, is, is not emptiness. They don't mean emptiness, the emptiness of any real way things are. They don't mean that the way things really are is they're not any real way. As if all these lenses, uh, or the couple or two or three lenses that they've sort of uh, described and practiced with and put out there, uh, are, are kind of more superficial levels, above a level where it's possible to be with what is, supposedly, and the way things really are, as if there's another mode of being that is not a lens, or as if there's a particular lens that is the lens that reveals the way things really are. That's bare attention, or just papancha-free sort of vividness of reality. But there's a similar kind of misunderstanding, a similar kind of truncating of the whole possibility of deepening insight, a similar kind of roadblock in the road of deeper insight there, because one has assumed there's a what is. One has assumed an end of fabrication somewhere that's not the end of fabrication. Has assumed a lens that will show me how things really are. There's a, a privileged lens, if one is using that language, a privileged way of looking. Not understanding that one can possibly travel the uh, road of emptiness, exploring emptiness, beyond any notion of what is or the way things really are. There is no independent reality, independent of a way of looking, of a lens. So we are just left with lenses, ways of looking. So this too betrays a kind of similarly limited understanding, or even a misunderstanding, kind of a limited use of this approach. But it was really significant, very, very significant. Or... uh, Another version of this sort of thing, this sort of misunderstanding, very limited understanding and a very problematic understanding, you know, happens when someone talks about ways of looking, emptiness, no real way things are, just ways of looking, and then and then says something like, All there really is is a flux or a flow, out of which the way of looking shapes this or that perception or appearance. All that, but all there really is, is a flux or flow. I don't actually explain a flux or flow of what, but uh, the problem really is in that all there really is, is a flow, a flux of something or other. And a, a flux, a flow, is a process, something that happens in time. So, again, there's something that's uh, assumed to be a reality independent of a way of looking, this basic flux or flow, and time, in which flux or flow must happen, flux or flow must happen in time, 
and it's out of that basic reality that the way of looking then shapes this or that more familiar objects of experience that we know. But again, it's limiting, it's truncating the process of process of insight, truncating and limiting the possible depth of insight. Time is also empty. Time arises through ways of looking. Take away the clinging enough, take away the avijja enough, time is not there. Time does not get fabricated. So there's a real danger there, again, that uh, practicing ways of looking with such an understanding, harboring in the background this all there really is, is a flux or flow, or whatever. The practicing ways of looking that way will not lead to an opening to the, the actual unfabricated, because it's staying uh, entrenched in and clinging to a notion of time as something basically existing, really existing. It may even be the amount of unfabricating that can happen with such a view in the background. Even if it's not in the foreground, if it's not, even if it's not clearly articulated, maybe the practicing under the umbrella of such a view, or having that view in the background, uh, actually brings very pretty limited unfabricating through practice. So very significant, uh, quite dangerous in a way, in terms of the way they will really confine our openings, our understandings, and really our sense of, of what emptiness is, and of how far practice can go, but really of what emptiness is, and thus of what reality is. Okay, so that's uh, a couple of things that are really important. Um, second thing is a bit more subtle, but sometimes people, when they're talking about their insight practice or reporting their insight practice to me and perhaps they've come from another tradition, they might use the language um, of um, drilling down through illusion or of seeing through self, for example. I see through self or I see through a certain manifestation of the meditator ego or something. And that language of seeing through is very different than the language implied by ways of looking approach, which is more seeing as. So, for example, when I practice anatta, a way of looking, when I practice the anatta view, I'm seeing as this phenomenon, this experience, this thing is not me, not mine. I'm seeing it as not me, not mine, rather than as me or mine. I'm not seeing through it. And seeing through, you know, the important thing here is seeing through has certain the phrase seeing through, the idea to see through something, to me, has certain implications and assumptions uh, wrapped up in it, as does the phrase drill down, um, has certain implications and assumptions, um, including an implicit realism. I'm seeing through, I'm seeing through the illusion, seeing through this veil to something else which is uh, the, the, the reality that is veiled. And that's quite, it sounds, again, it might sound pernickety, but that's actually fundamentally different in terms of the presupposition of what we are doing and how we are approaching understanding emptiness. 
um, how we are approaching this inquiry and exploration into emptiness fundamentally different than the language of seeing as. Seeing through, as I said, has certain implications and certain a certain kind of realism, a certain assumed reality implicit in it. As does the phrase drill down. Seeing as, to me, just implies that there are a range of ways of looking whose effects on perception interest me and whose effects on perception, particularly regarding fabrication and dependent arising and the implicit emptiness of all that, that interests me. I can see it as this, this pain, this physical thing, this phenomenon. I can see it as this, I can see it as that. I can look in this way, I can look in that way. And that's different than seeing through. Uh, Similarly, um, uh, uh, the language can be um, quite similar. And again, this is something I said the other day, but it bears repeating, I think. Um, You know, that word fabrication wasn't so popular a number of years ago. And I'm aware that some people have picked up that word now, or re-picked up, perhaps they used it ages ago. And uh, because it's a Pali word, and it's a good translation of the word um, sankara, uh, or sankata is fabricated. Um, and so people uh, thinking about dharma, or teaching dharma, or thinking about their own practice will um, very commonly agree it's an important concept, after all, the Buddha uses it. It's right there in the Wheel of Dependent Rising, it's right there uh, regularly in the Pali Canon. Um, and, and they think of fabrication. This is an important concept. Fabrication is an important concept. And kind of, yes, seeing through the fabricated or whatever um, or is important. And, for instance, one very common idea would be what's fabricated is papancha. In the common sense, proliferation, making a fuss, getting in a tizzy over something, catastrophizing etc., blowing things up out of all proportion. That's all fabrication. Um, And when we let go of that through mindfulness and bare attention and equanimity, we're actually not fabricating. We are in contact with the unfabricated. So mindfulness, bare attention, equanimity are ways of looking, modes of looking that reveal the unfabricated, just things as they are. So then a person might, uh, at the same time, be interested in the, in the concept of fabrication, agree it's an important concept, and whether they use the word unfabricated or not, they might implicitly agree there is an unfabricated uh, perception that we can uh, be in contact with, that can be revealed to us. But they have no interest in um, the mystical uh, depth of the unfabricated as I would understand it as something beyond any sense of subject, object, space, time, awareness, uh, etc. Beyond all phenomena. And they have no interest in that kind of uh, deep, mystical, unfabricated, or it feels irrelevant to life as we know it, or it's only for kind of some people who are kind of into that. But this, holding all those views together, would would in a strange way, be making a kind of arbitrary and artificial distinction between um, everyday life, or life, uh, and uh, what is mystical. Because this concept of 
um, fabrication and the, or, or rather, fabricating the possibility of fabricating is actually uh, um, one one strand. There's one strand of fabricating in the ways of looking approach that I would like to uh, support and make clearer. We're not actually presupposing what the end of fabrication is. I'm not deciding in advance. Fabrication stops at a kind of bare, pristine reality of things appearing to me. Or it stops on the kind of view that most people would agree on when they're not in, in papancha or not in a tizzy. Papancha uh, is a Pali word actually used itself at a lot of different levels. It comes has come to be used really at, at, a, at a much more gross level. Um, so that's just one end of the spectrum of fabricating. Papancha is very gross fabricating. But if we follow this idea of clinging deeper and deeper and keep the idea, keep just withhold any uh, presupposition or any, any quick deciding on where fabrication ends. So fabrication itself is an open concept. Let's find out through exploring ways of looking, through getting more skilled at letting go of subtler and subtler and deeper uh, and more refined levels of clinging, let's just see where this process of fabrication stops and where the unfabricated is. It's actually just one spectrum, and to me it goes all the way from papancha through everyday normal perception, through quieter, sort of more pristine awareness of that, and then through a whole series of fading. All this is one spectrum, and that series of fading is that it goes all the way down to the fading, the unfabricating of any sense of subject, any sense of object, any sense of space, or time, or consciousness, or anything like that. So if it's one spectrum, one inquiry into fabrication and how we can let go of fabrication, why has a person drawn the line where they have? They need to somehow justify that. If you draw the line at just, it's what appears when uh, we agree with uh, most of the other people on the planet about what is real. Or it's what appears when things look really shiny and clear, as they will with a kind of bright mindfulness. It's just a, it's just a point on that on that spectrum of non-fabricating. So where exactly do you draw the line, and why exactly have you drawn the line there? So this again, the principle of fabrication, clinging, and fading here is it's one principle, and it's the same principle that a person is drawing on when they say fabrication is an important concept, and pancha is what's fabrication. Uh, and we want, to, we want to unfabricate that, get rid of that, so we can be with what's unfabricated. It's the same principle, but it's one spectrum continuing much, much deeper than that. It's only presuppositions, essentially unquestioned reality assumptions, that one is dragging in to what's really, as I said, one spectrum, and therefore a coherent system, Coherent principle, fabrication, clinging, uh, and fading. It's one, one system. Uh, coherent system. And then one is dividing that spectrum, either arbitrarily or just in line with my presuppositions, dividing what was coherent and undivided, a continuous spectrum, and in some way, by dividing it, actually making it incoherent. Now, one can do that. Of course one can. But it's just, what's the justification 
seems to me one would need a pretty um, strong, philosophically uh, worked out justification if you're going to do that. Because one makes something that was coherent, incoherent. Okay. Uh, And similarly, um, we're on these sort of minor misunderstandings, a little bit related to something we said earlier today. Uh, Sometimes someone reports to me, you know, I'm trying to get rid of the usual relentless sense of self. And that's actually how they're approaching their meditative practice. And again, they might have heard some teachings or picked up um, a book or something and, and have sort of twisted the intention or distorted the intention, very understandable, to trying to get rid, even momentarily, of the usual relentless sense of self. I'm trying to unfabricate something, I'm trying to get rid of something. That intention to try to get rid, even if it's just for a moment, have a moment taste of the, uh, free of the usual relentless sense of self, that may be either, again, from an, an idea that's being dragged in about the reality of no self. It's a very uh, common understandable to to, to drag it, to understand what we're doing in emptiness uh, explorations, as we want to see that what's real is that there is no self. And then one's taking that idea, where one has heard it or read it or misunderstood it or whatever it is, um, one's taking that idea and bringing that in, so then I'm trying to get rid of this usual sense of self. So maybe drag an idea in, um, a habitual idea, a common idea, uh, that the reality is that there is no self. That's the on, you know, ontological truth of, 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 of things, is that the self has no reality, or that what is real is no self. So one may, may be coming from an idea, or and or it may be coming from an aversion, or even a neurosis a sort of aversion to oneself and the sense of self, or the kinds of ways that the self arises. So this is really not helpful. Aversion will certainly um, not help in the whole investigation. Uh, If aversion is there unconsciously, it won't help um, in the investigation of ways of looking at fabrication and emptiness. Um, And if it's there driving things, it will tend to actually just fabricate more. Um, but also it's not helpful because the understanding is wrong. One has dragged in another understanding, another assumption about reality and truth that is uh, different than than the assumptions that ground the ways of looking approach into emptiness. So some of this will be obvious for some of you and some will will seem not obvious at all and like a bit like hair splitting but actually really really important and you will see it in the fruits because if these sort of basic grounding ideas are not correct or they're limited uh, they will be limiting and what they deliver in terms of the the way the whole uh, meditation exploration opens up 
and what it delivers and the degree of unfabricating it delivers and the degree of understanding emptiness that it delivers, that will all be limited um, because some kind of basic assumptions are getting in the way or distorting things or limiting things. So, um, when we talk about ways of looking, what, so what are we talking about? We're talking about um, the whole uh, collection or weave, as I said, of um, what's involved in the relationship with anything that one's experiencing in any moment. So, the tendency to grasp or hold on or push away to whatever degree clinging in that obvious sense the appropriation of self the assumptions about its reality all kinds of other assumptions the ideas, the conceptual frameworks the belief in time all that is woven into the, to the way of looking when we practice ways of looking what we're really doing is um, taking certain elements of that whole collection of what's in a way of looking at any moment, just focusing on certain elements and changing them. So for the example we used earlier was anatta, not me, not mine. The habitual way of looking, without thinking about it, without it being a conscious um, action in the mind, or something we can even often realize is going on, certainly without it being ve- uh, verbal, is me, mine, me, mine. To this experience, that experience, this object, whatever. And um, what we're doing when we practice the anatta way of looking is we're just changing that, changing that to not me, not mine. And this not me, not mine is something that's very, very lightly held in the way of looking or uh, you could say inserted into the way of looking. Actually, we're removing the usual me, mine. Um, And very very lightly and delicately it's um, there in in the way of looking. The way of looking itself is uh, well, we'll come back to that. Um, Ways of looking as we practice them have subtexts so that um, when we say empty, for example, um, as a way of looking. We don't really say it. We might say it just as a whisper in the mind or we look at something and, and look at it as empty. That's practicing a way of looking. But what that means, um, we could write an essay on it or a book even. What does it mean? And we're not going through all that every time, but it has to be implicitly woven in to the way of looking when we look at things as empty. So the subtext, if you like, this what sometimes joke called the small print of a way of looking, is often very complex, and it has to be held very, very lightly. It's implicit there in the way of looking. If we return to the anatta way of looking and actually just focus on something that was interesting, I was talking to someone the other day, so this just serves as a good example. And they were, they had moved on from practicing the anatta way of looking with, for example, body sensations and thoughts and mind states and things like that. Um, They had actually moved on to what's usually more difficult, um, to a stage of anatta practice where one's regarding awareness itself, the consciousness itself, as anatta, as not me, not mine. And in the course of the conversation, it became clear that 
the subtext here is a little more complex. So, what's involved here? There's, uh, this person was aware that it meant there's no doing of awareness. So for them, what the anatta of awareness, what was the only thing that was in their uh, anatta way of looking when they turned it on awareness was that there's no doing of awareness, which actually means there's no agency. It means, um, so they, they needed to have that language, um, I think, just slightly altered. It's not that there's no, no doing, it's that there's no one doing it. It's not that there's no effort and no doing, because later on, one really begins to understand at a very deep level and practice at a deep level, you, you see that any moment of experience, any moment of appearance and perception, or any, any uh, arising of any phenomena at all, involves doing on the part of the subject. It's not non-doing. It's not... Um, uh, it's the, the fact that we could say there's no agent. There's no agency. It's not me doing. The effort and the doing that go with awareness are not me, not mine. So that's one thing um, that he needed uh, a little bit expanding. Because what he was finding was, unlike when he did um, anatta practice, anatta way of looking on other phenomena, it worked quite well with the fading and the release of dukkha, etc. Here, with the, when he was trying to do the anatta awareness, it seemed to be quite limited. So we were, we were uh, finding out why. It's because there wasn't enough uh, in, in, his, uh, in his way of looking when, when he looked at awareness and said anatta, or, and looked at it with the view anatta, rather. So, it's not that there's no doing of awareness, it's that there's no agency. That was one thing. But he was also missing two other factors. One is that there's no possession of awareness. It's not mine. So there's no entity of self that owns this awareness, of which the awareness makes up uh, a part of this self, this entity. And there's no, also, thirdly, there's no identification with awareness. The awareness, the consciousness, is not me. So we have no, no possession, no identification, and no agency, for example. So if you want a little acronym, if this is helpful, you can think there's no PIA, there's no PIA. Um, that understanding is tacitly wrapped up in, and it's present in the subtext of just um, attending to the sense of awareness and looking at it as anatta. So like I said, even there, even before we get onto like it's empty in itself, or empty, empty, uh, the even there with the anatta of awareness, what's involved in the subtext is actually fairly complex, and it needs to be um, woven in and understood as part of the way of, uh, in the way of looking. The, the way of looking needs to have that understanding in it. Um, so this is this is uh, not just the details there, but, um, but the general principle is is very important. Um, so this business with ways of, ways of looking is really, um, you know, we're not talking about something abstract. We're talking about practice, and it's really an art, and in some cases a very subtle and delicate art and skill that we need to develop. It's not just going to happen like that, um, and it's certainly not abstract. 
Um, so, you know, do you know for yourself firsthand the effect of um, sensing something through the lens of a way of looking uh, where you're regarding it as empty? compared to what happens when you're sensing something and through a way of looking that, that just automatically, as a default, just regards it as re- real, as inherently existing. These two have massively different effects on perception. When you're really regarding something through a lens that really understands its emptiness, it's profound fading that happens. Of course, we know we move in the world and only very little fading happens when we're uh, essentially practicing unconsciously and um, automatically and by habit the view that comes out of what the Buddha would call avijja, avijja, ignorance, delusion, which assumes the reality, the inherent existence of phenomena. So we're not, we're, we're not talking about something abstract here when we talk about ontology and ways of looking and, and all that business and emptiness. We're really talking about practices which are r- real arts to develop. So if, if one just tries it, um, it's unlikely that will have any effect to just regard things as empty or not real. Unless it really means something, I'm very clear what it means. And I have ground or reason. So if I, if I just regard something as empty while I'm paying attention to it, unless... Um, that word empty really means something unless I have and unless I have real really good grounds or reasons um, to believe that it's empty based on my experience based on something an understanding an insight I've really consolidated through practice it won't do anything it's just a word and might as well say octopus or something so these ways of looking need to be understood by us what does it mean? What's involved? Uh, what's the subtext in that way of looking? And we need to have confidence in that subtext, in what it means. I have confidence. There's a real grounding in my being. There's a real reason why I can uh, uh, sense something, pay attention to something, and at the same time as pay- I'm paying attention to it, regard it as empty. That has to be based on my on a clear understanding and a solid, uh, consolidated um, foundation of understanding through experience. I know it's empty. I know why it's empty. I know why I think it's empty. Why I know it's empty. And secondly, and related to what I said earlier, you know, we're not talking about um, big, chunky, gross sort of philosophical ramblings sort of um, you know, rumbling through the mind um, we're not talking about thinking about things we're talking about a way of looking um, these understandings, these convictions uh, the, these clarities are uh, very very kind of um, subtly uh, woven in to the way of looking so that the way of looking itself is, is very, very delicate, very, very agile. And we're actually sensing things that way. We're not like busy thinking about some philosophy. And that ability to convert clear, uh, essentially clear philosophical understanding based on experience into a very delicate and agile and 
um, kind of subtle uh, way of looking, way of sensing something in you know, any of the six senses, that takes practice to develop. Usually, I mean, almost always. But I would say, you know, I've, I wonder if there's anything in life, anything in existence, anything that we could spend our time developing uh, between the intervals of birth and death, and the interval between birth and death. There's anything more worth it than developing ways of looking. If, if I want the fullest, deepest, widest liberation, I think that comes through liberating ways of looking, the liberation of ways of looking, the development of ways of looking, of a range of ways of looking. Because that will um, open up this whole territory of emptiness, etc. We could say, in the end, what liberation is, as well as um, the liberation of suffering, it's the liberation of ways of looking. In other words, ways of looking become available to us. We're not imprisoned. We're not constrained. There's the liberation from the, the prison of uh, only certain fixed ways of looking at things, only certain fixed uh, relationships and perception, relationships with the world and perceptions of self, other world, time, etc. So full liberation is a liberation of ways of looking. Liber- liberation into accessibility of ways of looking. And of course, that enables more liberation from suffering. But even more, if I want the fullest, deepest, widest love, not just liberation, but if I want the fullest, deepest, widest love, then if I follow that love, if I follow the eros, if I follow the metta, that... uh, and I pay attention to the ways of looking, it naturally opens. And then I practice those ways of looking. What that does is it uh, increases the metta, increases the eros. And because of that, the eros-psychologos dynamic, the soul-making dynamic, is um, ignited further, galvanized further, opens further. There's more eros, but more uh, psyche and logos, and translate as image, is more sense of things. The sense of things opens up. They show us more aspects. We can see uh, sense levels of them, other perceptions of them, psyche. And logos, the whole idea, the whole conception of things, the perception, the conception, psyche and logos, the perception, conception of things opens up. And in that opening up of psyche and logos, of perception and conception, idea of things, and then that can stimulate the eros even more. There's more ways of looking opened up, etc. The whole thing opens up um, through uh, following the ways of looking that are, that we find out are there when there is eros, when there is metta or karuna, etc. 
and then developing those ways of looking it opens up further, 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 further. So I've explained that in uh, many times once in the uh, Ecology of Love series of talks, how the whole Eros Psychologos dynamics works. The soul making dynamic works um, in the opening up of love, basically, to whole other levels, whole other domains, whole other spread range. So, if we want the fullest, deepest, widest liberation, ways of looking. If we want the fullest, deepest, widest love, ways of looking. If we want also the fullest, deepest, widest meaningfulness and beauty in our existence, in our life, the sense uh, of meaningfulness and, and beauty, if we want that to be the fullest, the richest, the deepest, the widest. Again, trusting that perception of meaningfulness and beauty enough to discern what are the ways of looking that are there when that sen- those senses are around of meaningfulness and beauty. And there will be many. And then practicing them. And what that does, again, it, it, it will open up further the sense of soul-making. So meaningfulness and beauty are integral to soul-making. And that will uh, open up further uh, the sense of uh, beauty, etc. And suggest open up more ways of looking. This is all just part, again, of how the soul-making dynamic works. It's a general principle here. If we want to, if we want something, whether it's to understand emptiness, whether it's liberation, whether it's love, whether it's um, soul making, we need to practice ways of looking that lead to that. Practice ways of looking in ways that uh, lead to that, to understanding emptiness, to a sense of liberation, to uh, love. to a sense of soul making and then what those ways of looking deliver understanding emptiness liberation love or soul making those deliverances will also open us to more ways of looking or deliver to us also a greater range of ways of looking We practice ways of looking as powerful ways um, to open to what it is that we want, whatever that is, what we want deeply. Emptiness, understanding, liberation, love, soul-making dynamic, soul-making general. And then we let that opening that the ways of looking have uh, delivered, we let that, uh, or it will, open up more ways of looking. That's how the soul-making dynamic works. It's how liberation works. It's how an understanding of emptiness works. Practice ways of looking to get X and then let X um, deliver to us, suggest to us, open for us even more ways of looking. So, sometimes I think there's nothing more worthwhile in life than... Uh, developing the whole 
notion and idea of ways of looking. Okay, so if we, as I said, just revisit this point, it's quite easy to hear about the ways of looking approach and hear about emptiness and how they relate and jump to certain conclusions before we've practiced it um, or or even start, as I said, pra- get, get off on the wrong foot in our understanding. So a few things here. And uh, particularly with regard to ethics. So someone might hear the... You know the teachings about emptiness, and um, start, so to speak, at the end, as if they're being asked to believe something, which is that everything, all things are empty, and they might hear that or read it. All things are absolutely empty, and then they uh, forgotten about the whole ways of looking thing, and, and they they just um, interpret as if they're being asked to believe something that all things are empty whereas that's a conclusion. So in practice, we don't start by believing anything um, like that. We don't start with the conclusion. Um, Because someone um, who who would start in such a way would understandably have the concern, but then I I wouldn't care, or nothing would matter. And what about ethics and that sort of thing, if everything's empty? They're trying to understand it from their sort of usual conventional point of view without really understanding it, which can only only really come about through practice. Rather, we start with um, these two notions that I mentioned before. Start with the possibility that there are possible there is the possibility of a range of ways of looking. That's part of what it is to have a human uh, mind and heart, human chitta. And secondly, that there's um, we explore the fabrication of suffering, of self and other, etc., through different ways of looking. And that exploration, as I said, is an open-ended, experiential and experimental inquiry, without predeciding the limit of fabrication, or, without predeciding that fa- fabrication just ends here, thank you very much, and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't go down to all that deep fading business and that mystical stuff, without predeciding that, or, uh, or nor, uh, without without predeciding that everything is empty and everything is an illusion. Even though we might be told that may be the conclusion, we don't know what that means yet, and it would be it would be silly to start with a conclusion that we don't really understand. Let's keep it open and find out. Just to take those two. Uh, ideas, way, the possibility of flexibility of ways of looking and the extension of that range and this idea of the fabrication of suffering, self and other. And then, and then open-ended, experimental, experiential inquiry without pre-deciding either way. So that should uh, allay to a certain extent someone's fears around, well, you're asking me to believe this and that everything is empty and that to me implies that um, I'm not going to care or nothing matters or ethics won't won't matter, etc. But a few more things that it's important to say here. Um, emptiness ways of looking, in other words, ways of looking that see something uh, or see experience, phenomena, objects to some to some level or other as empty, 
any any emptiness ways of looking is just a way of looking which we can pick up and put down. In other words, it's not an ultimate truth. It's not somewhere to park your way of looking as if we could forever and stay in a certain way of looking. The whole thing is flexible and it, all, and it needs to keep uh, a range and, and flexibility. We pick up and put down emptiness ways of looking. So that sometimes it, we want to put down emptiness ways of looking and pick up a rarefied view of self, of other, of suffering, of this or that, of some ethical situation, even of something like um, responsibility in in an ethical misdemeanor. So how do we decide whether we pick up, what we pick up and put down in terms of a way of looking? Well, we're responsive to what's needed. And in Buddha Dharma, we base our choice of way of looking in any moment on what reduces suffering. In soul-making dharma, our choice is based on what opens up the soul-making. And the suffering, if we're basing it on the reduction of suffering, is of self, of other, and world. But emptiness ways of looking are things we pick up and put down. They're not, now I'm going to all the time be in this emptiness ways of looking or this this uh, this view of the emptiness of all things, and I'm sort of stuck there, and how will the ethics come in, and things like that. So that's the second point, very important. The third point, again, relates to the fact that um, understanding emptiness, or exploring emptiness through the ways of looking approach, is uh, probably more unusual. And what's more common, uh, perhaps, is that emptiness is equated not with the kind of understanding that comes out of the whole journey through uh, the the ways of looking uh, approach, but rather emptiness is equated with either uh, sort of a big empty space in which um, appear just insubstantial objects without, and there's not much self or personality, it seems, or much doing. And that's often someone's understanding of emptiness. Um, or a second understanding can be emptiness kind of refers to just a sort of machine-like process of the aggregates, the five aggregates of of, of being. Body, Vedana, perception, mental formations and consciousness. And uh, what's really empty is um, the self. Um, here, emptiness means impermanence, impermanent, because there is just the impermanent moment-to-moment arising and passing of that process of the aggregates in time, a bit like a machine. And that's what emptiness means to some people, or that's a common view. So either it's a big empty space of insubstantiality, not much self, not much doing, it seems, or it's this kind of um, emptiness of the self, which actually reduces a kind of impermanent nature of the aggregates as a process in time. But neither of those two understandings or views of emptiness has any obvious connection with dependent arising, nor does it easily bring out the connection with dependent arising and also with karma, which are two sides of the same thing, dependent arising and karma. So those two views of emptiness, the connection is not obvious. However, one of the one of the sort of um, uh, reasons one might want to explore emptiness through the ways of looking 
and fabrication paradigm is that if we start with uh, those notions, ways of looking at fabrication, then dependent arising is woven in always, right from the beginning. That's, that's totally what we're exploring, what we're paying attention to. Dependent on this way of looking, dependent on this mind-state-attitude relationship, such that's all woven into the way of looking, dependent on this way of looking, then suffering and self and other and world arise and appear a lot, a little, or like this or like that, dependent on the way of looking. Dependent arising is woven into it. So, even something like generosity becomes a way of looking. Um, when I'm generous, the self, other, world um, arise a certain way. I feel myself a certain If I really practice generosity, if I really am very generous and open-hearted, then I'll notice something about how self, other, world appear. If I really take it on as an inquiry. And also, that suffering gets reduced through generosity. Um, in the now, in the giving. I mean, of course, you can have some suffering because you've given so much that I'm afraid, etc. But generally speaking, one really explores it over time with wisdom. One sees that basically generosity becomes, a, we could call it a way of looking. You see how expansive that term is. But when there's generosity, I sense things, um, I sense self, other world a certain way. Uh, and suffering is reduced. When there's the opposite, the absence of generosity, then when there's, let's say, stinginess, then self-other world get fabricated very differently, more separate, more contracted, more hard, more solid, and suffering increases. So that in this way of working with emptiness, the ways of looking approach and fabrication approach to emptiness, then Ethics is integrated into emptiness right from the beginning. It's unavoidable. The approach integrates karma into our understanding of emptiness unavoidably. We see it, we know it, we feel it firsthand. And, and as we go deeper, we see the world is different dependent on the way of looking. The other, those other two um, understandings of emptiness that I mentioned briefly, the sort of big space insubstantiality and the sort of moment-to-moment arising and passing of the aggregates, um, it's possible, or rather it's more possible, that they can lead to a kind of um, moral nihilism. One might assume, well, there's no self there, therefore there'll be no selfishness. Right? There's no self in that machine-like process of the aggregates in time, uh, momentary arising and passing, nor is there much self in that big, big empty space. And with, with less self, there's less selfishness. So one might think, oh, they should help with morality, and maybe they will. But neither, actually, is there much of a world there. And uh, the effects uh, of ways of looking and of actions kind of get dissolved and not noticed in that big space or in the kind of microscopic, myopic attention to um, to the momentary arising and passing. And then it might well be that um, ethics needs supplementation by a separate teaching, separate teaching about sila, because it's, it's not quite clear um, 
what these understanding of emptiness have to do with ethics. This is also the case in a lot in the Tibetan tradition, how they emphasize repeatedly the importance of ethics, um, almost as a separate domain than the understanding of emptiness. It's like um, it gets re-emphasized, as if the... Uh, don't forget about karma. Karma is more important than um, shunyata, the Dalai Lama would say. So sometimes because either their approach to emptiness is not coming through the ways of looking fabrication dependent arising paradigm, it's coming through an analytical approach where one just analyzes logically to see that things can have no inherent existence. Or it's coming through a sort of some level of a big space approach to emptiness. Um, and then those two approaches too will 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 need this kind of um, supplementary teachings on ethics because they're not it's not at all obvious what the connection is and there's a danger of nihilism it's not wrapped up the whole the way appearances arise dependently and and arise as this or that as well as suffering nor the fact of arising that it arises dependently on uh, the way of looking. No clinging, no arising. No avijja, no arising. But in the ways of looking fabrication approach, the ways of looking approach to emptiness, there may be um, no need for extra ethical teaching in terms of basic ethics, because um, experience through the practice teaches ethics and karma, again, through inquiry into ways of looking, fabrication, dependent arising. It's right there. I remember interviews really quite some years ago, and um, someone came in for the interview, and as part of it, um, he said, well, you know, this view you have about the non-reality of things and emptiness, that really needs challenging. And he was a bit concerned about it, and, uh, but he couldn't quite make the challenge himself. And, and, but he said, it's just not right, it's not right. Now, I know that he was um, very concerned about uh, things like climate change. Um, so I can't remember how the conversation panned out, because... He had never practiced ways of looking, etc. So I don't remember actually what's said, but um, it would be it would have been worth his while to actually look among, for example, among Dharma teachers, um, those who are the ones who seem like they're not really engaged very much in in social justice issues or environmental issues. So this is what he cared about. If you have that notion of the emptiness of things, you're, uh, it's dangerous to any kind of care for climate, etc. Now, he knew that I was very concerned with climate and I was very active, etc. So he should have rather, I think, asked the question, how is it that you can believe that about the emptiness of things and still be so dedicated to um, climate issues and, and environmental issues and working on that and trying to raise consciousness about that? That would have been um, probably a more... Uh, appropriate question. If one looks, um, you know, who is it who thinks, practices, teaches, talks in terms of the kind of uh, the deepest and most comprehensive emptiness, and and 
are they are they people with uh, deeply engaged practices? In other words, their conception and practice of the Dharma extends to engagement with social justice um, and uh, ecological issues, etc. And the ones who don't, who have a most realist view, contrary to the sort of easy assumption that this person was making, if we don't have a realist view, it will be a problem. Actually, look, look at, the, at the practitioners and, and etc., writers, teachers, who seem to espouse a very realist view and see see what's happening in their engagement. Even if someone doesn't totally first-hand get the whole deep and comprehensive emptiness thing, it will still, if they're drawn to it, um, it will still guide their philosophy and what they aspire to and realise in practice. So you can compare that way. In other words, to put the whole thing better, the fact of this coexisting of um, the deep, thorough emptiness view, the coexisting of that with a radical and long-term commitment to engagement should have led to um, a questioning of his fears and assumptions that emptiness would, would give rise to moral nihilism, I would say. Also, we might just reflect in terms of just, I'm going to talk more about ethics in the future, but um, we might reflect a little bit, be wise to reflect that uh, it's not so much non-reification or seeing the emptiness of things that leads to a lack of care of ethics. I might assume that again, as this person did. But really, it's a reification that leads to crime, a reification of self, as a center of gravity of acquisition and of other, I want that object, that thing, uh, a real thing that's going to give me something. That's what leads to crime and unethical behavior. It's the reification of self and what I want, the objects that I want. Um, with non-reification of self and other, the impulses um, to criminally acquire or unethically acquire things um, decreases. That would be another reflection. I will come back to talk more about ethics um, later on. So it's very easy to misunderstand or only partially understand, as I said, or, or to, to drag other other assumptions into this whole uh, understanding of emptiness and this whole approach to emptiness and uh, way, ways of looking approach. So Bertrand Russell, I read this the other day, I'm not sure what the context is, whether he was um, meant this deliberately about someone that had written something about what he'd written, or something, he sounds a little ticked off and it sounds quite judgmental, but he said, A stupid man's report of what a clever man says can never be accurate, because he unconsciously translates what he hears into something he can understand. Stupid man's report of what a clever man says can never be accurate because he unconsciously translates what he hears into something he can understand. So, yeah, don't know the context. It does sound a bit judgmental, etc. But I think the the more general point is is well taken that it's easy as human beings for us to read or hear something that's subtle and sophisticated and actually just squeeze it into a box of what we 
what we can already understand or what we already know. So we chop bits off, we shave bits off, we turn things around, squeeze them, uh, change their relationships so that it can fit into the box of what we already, what we can understand and what we can already know. This business of emptiness is deep and subtle business. And there's been in the history of Buddhism uh, a lot of care around emptiness teachings. And also, we should say, with Tantric and Vajrayana teachings, a lot of care about uh, who they're given to and how we need to set them up, etc. The Tantric teachings have parallels with, uh, similarities at least, with soul-making Dharma teachings, similar. Do we really need to take care that both um, the emptiness and the soul-making in this case, is not, is not misunderstood, distorted, twisted, only partially understood, only understood at a very superficial level, that we've not got sloppy with all that. I do think so, and through the history of the Buddha Dharma, through millennia, there's been, until very recently, a lot of care around how teachings are, how and when they're given and disseminated. And I think I've said this before, but you know it's possible for us to be slo- uh, to, to be sloppy um, in our understanding um, of emptiness. So it's it's subtle and it's sophisticated, um, and it runs very very deep. So, for example, I think I've said this before. You know, um, in, you say. What does emptiness mean? It means that there is no real way anything is. But that that fact of emptiness, that meaning of emptiness, that there is no real way anything is, it does not entail that a thing can be anything. There's no real way anything is, but it doesn't mean that a thing can be anything. Or if we put it in, in slightly different ways, the fact that there is no way a thing really is does not imply that there is no way it really isn't. So there's, you know, it's not just saying, oh, things are empty, therefore anything can be anything. Or a thing can be anything. Subtle and sophisticated. So I really think it's important not to be sloppy with all this business about emptiness. Um, We're talking about a very refined uh, understanding. And that middle way of emptiness is really a, a razor's edge. It's really a very fine line between nihilism and realism. And you need to take care not to be sloppy. And some people say, um, again, this is not so much sloppiness, but just a little more precision is needed. So I've heard several times uh, someone say, some people say, we need to understand emptiness before we practice soul-making dharma, because otherwise we're going to reify. We're going to reify the images. Um, well, a couple of things here. First of all, not necessarily, and I don't think James Hillman uh, was reifying his images. Uh, very much the sense I get, get from reading him was that uh, he was really interested with in that territory of as-if. Kind of what we would call neither real nor not real, the imaginal middle way. And I don't think he had any training in emptiness or Buddhist philosophy or anything like that. It's more a, almost an aesthetic disposition, more an intuitive understanding of what the imaginal involves. But secondly, and more importantly, it's um, 
the non-reification of images is more it's or understanding not reifying images involves more than just seeing that they're empty it involves the recognition of their different ontological status than the ontological status of conventionally agreed upon objects or material things or emotions so emptiness is something that applies to all objects. Yes? It applies to, like we said at the beginning, it applies to um, this solid desk is empty of inherent existence, but also is the dream your daughter had of a monster chasing her that came out from under her bed. Uh, as, as it applies to an imaginal image in meditation. Emptiness applies to all objects. It's not enough of an ontological assessment here. What we need to do is understand that an image, an imaginal image, has a different ontological status. It's not that, uh, just that it's empty. It has a different ontological status, and it's uh, then conventionally agreed upon, for example, material objects. So that if that lion in the image wants to... um, rip me apart and eat me and devour me, uh, I understand in the meditation that there is a different ontological status than were a, a, a real line there. That oh. they're both empty. So there's something we need to understand uh, a bit more precisely. It's not just the fact of emptiness. that allows us to navigate um, imaginal practice. Different ontological status of images and conventional objects, but both empty. When it comes to uh, emptiness practice, and something I've said, uh, I think, recently, uh, that I want to highlight it again, is I think... um, I think eros is really needed. We really need to be um, erotically curious about emptiness and the practice. We need to be passionately uh, interested and excited, even. You know, the necessity of Eros for practice is, is uh, actually the necessity of, er, in, of Eros, the necessity of Eros in, in life and in helping with all kinds of things is uh, something we could, we should emphasize. So I think of someone I know, she's probably 85, and she has um, never trained her mind in meditation, not interested in any of all that. And she's 85 and she has. Some physical dukkha, but um, a fair amount of mental dukkha in relationship to her physical dukkha and other things. But she has never trained her mind. So, um, you know, her reactivity and uh, is going to be more than someone who has trained their mind through mindfulness and, and um, meditation. And she's got lots of uh, habits of the chitta habits of the way she relates to, to things, etc., that are not going to really help, that will actually increase her dukkha. Um, 
So you'd think, okay, mindfulness will help her, training in mindfulness will help her, and undoubtedly it will. <clears throat> but I have a question, is it mindfulness that would help her the most? Because this person is also, I would say, not actually deeply interested in anything. And I've known her for quite some years, and I would say that she's never really been deeply interested in anything. So she's been happy enough in her life, etc. Periods of <clears throat> less happy and all that. And now she, she's getting old, she is old. Um, there's more mental dukkha. But is it the mindfulness that would actually help her most? Because she's not also deeply interested in anything. There's very little, in other words, eros in her life. Eros too, this deep interest in something. Uh, that would give her life soulfulness, meaningfulness, beauty, vitality. And um, in that, would there would be an in increase in well-being and happiness. So, which is... Which is the more important ingredient, the mindfulness or the emptiness? Oh, the eros, sorry. The mindfulness or the eros? The eros is really, really important in life, in relationship to suffering. Yes, it cuts, but without it, a life without eros will in inevitably be uh, have some form of depression in it. But to get back to what I was saying before, I think emptiness practices need to be fueled by eros, by a kind of, yeah, you know, what do we call it, erotic curiosity and excitement. Or they will be much more profoundly and widely helpful and liberating um, if one is really interested in emptiness, excited and passionate about it, loves it, loves exploring it. Instead of emptiness and emptiness practices just being a set of techniques to reduce suffering. Which, which they can be regarded at. Yeah, look at this this way. Practice this way of looking and there will be much less suffering. But if they're just related to as a set of techniques to reduce suffering and decrease unhelpful cognitive patterns, uh, I don't think we're going to get all the wide, deep, liberating juice out of it. Actually, we could say that with any practice, mindfulness, metta, generosity, compassion. We need eros for that practice. In the Mahayana suttas, I'm pretty sure it's from the different Prajnaparamita suttas, but maybe other places as well, they say things like, you should only teach, a bodhisattva only teaches emptiness to those whose hair stands on end when they hear about it. They're so excited. Um, or they, they you know, uh, shed tears of uh, joy or being moved, even if they don't understand it. It's only to those people i.e. Um, emptiness, the teachings of emptiness and the practice of emptiness are not being set or received in fertile ground if, it, if it's coming with, a, oh, I should practice emptiness. Um, my Dharma friends are into it, or they say it's the, it's the best thing. Emptiness is the best, or emptiness is necessary. You can't be a proper practitioner if you don't practice, or it's advanced, so I, uh, you know, my ego gets a certain boost or gratification. Um, in practicing that level of teachings or whatever. All that will, will, will be a dry soil, an unfertile soil. Practice of emptiness, practices of emptiness, inquiry into emptiness, exploration of it, needs eros. Absolutely. I think to be really fertile, it's the, it's the juice, it's the, it's the moisture, the water in the soil that allows it to be fertile. 
<clears throat> and it's that eros that also will prevent us being sloppy with it. We're not satisfied. The eros wants to go more, a more refined understanding, a more subtle understanding, a more careful and precise understanding of emptiness. So again, care with the sloppiness. Care, as well as I said before, um, in regard to the ethics question, care not, care not to start with a conclusion about emptiness. So someone... Uh, I had a question from someone a while ago that ended up on my desk, and, um, and they were asking about trauma. And they were saying, well, in, in your book, Seeing That Frees, basically, or the book Seeing That Frees is basically saying that trauma is empty. Whereas there was another book they were reading, and it was basically saying that trauma is real, and it's uh, neurologically wired, and it's a, it's, it's a, a real physical factor. And then the phrase they used was, the body keeps the score, or something, the body keeps score. So you get these two views. Either it's empty, which was you know, attributed to, that's what seeing the freeze, that's what Rob is saying, it's just empty. Or this other view, it's a real thing. It's an absolutely real thing, and it's real because it's neurologically wired. You can't get away from the physical reality of that. So why not, why not, why not just bring a bit more care and openness and subtlety to the investigation here. This is a really, really important investigation. Why not acknowledge some dependence, that it must be at least some dependence of the experience of trauma on factors in the present? Okay, so here's this traumatic event or series of events, maybe even series over a long time, and just acknowledge that how that how that arises for me its effect in the present in the present how it comes up in the present depends on factors in the present depends whether it's met by love met by warmth met by spaciousness or met, whether it's met by uh, harshness and judgmentalism and contraction and all kinds of other assumptions and uh, all kinds of things there's some some dependence just start that we, we must know everyone must agree on that the experience of trauma, how I actually experience it in this moment, depends to some extent on factors in the present. And maybe just start with that without assuming either of those other um, extreme views. Rob says empty, trauma is empty. Or the extreme view of it's a real thing, the body keeps a score, it's an absolutely hardwired real, real, real thing. That's not what I'm saying. By the way, that one extreme view, it's not what seeing the freeze uh, says or, or approach, uh, the way it approaches it anyway. But why not just start with some, uh, acknowledge the some dependency of the actual experience of trauma on factors in the present. It de- the experience of trauma depends to some degree on factors in the present. And then just start with that and then keep exploring exploring with practice and with ways of looking without presupposing either extreme view or, again, presupposing how much or where is the limit of the effect of conditions in the present on on trauma. Same principle. Keep it open. Keep it an investigation. Don't jump to either a real... Uh, either a, a realist or a nihilist view. Extreme, what the Buddha called extreme views. The middle way is the middle between extreme views. 
what else is trauma after all but but an experience an experience. we don't talk about trauma if if it has if it's gone completely and there's no experience it has no effects whatsoever in the present trauma is its effects in the present so that's what we're talking about this is really really important just you're just starting with the idea a very gentle open idea i don't know there must be somewhat dependent on, on present factors. This experience of trauma must be somewhat dependent on factors in the present. Let's find out how much. That would be a ways of looking empty, empty approach, a ways of looking approach and the way I would teach him. So find out, find out, just keep going. And if you come to an absolutely that's it, okay. But find out. Because it also might be the case, um, just pursuing this, this particular theme around trauma, that um, other, other, other factors are at play here. So again, rather than agree, or rather than argue between uh, absolute and abstract views, you know, rather, rather than uh, argue between two views that are kind of absolute, it's like this, it's like that. Um, and that may be actually quite abstract, Again, they're abstract by that. I mean, they're taken as positions by belief rather than an experiential inquiry. So rather than argue between two views that are kind of extreme, absolute, or abstract uh, with regard to trauma, either that it's an inherently existent, unbudgeable reality of the body and nervous system, on the one hand, or that it's empty, uh, on the other hand, it would be much more helpful to start with what should be quite obvious that trauma will be experienced very differently and have very different effects dependent on the attitudes, habit patterns, and habit patterns of mind, heart, will, soul, and relationality that accompany it. And those habit patterns might have been already established as habits before the occurrence of the traumatic incidents. This person might already have had, uh, before this traumatic series of incidents, might already have had um, a, a quite strong tendency to aversion. Might already have entrenched, unfortunately, a habit towards what we might call laziness. A habit towards easily collapsing as well, psychically, in terms of herself, in terms of her strength and power and uprightness. Might also, unfortunately, have a lack of wisdom. And a habitual, uh, what became habitual might be a, an avoidance of challenge, an avoidance of the unpleasant, it might have been inculcated as a habit in, into the life, into the mind and, and, uh, and the being. Might have developed um, in many areas a, a weak will, and yet in other areas a kind of stubborn will. All these, all these kind of Pre, uh, uh, pre-constituted habits and factors may be part of determining more than the actual traumatic incidence itself. May be part of determining how the trauma and its effects play out in 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 her life over decades. It's not so much the trauma, it's the fact that the, the, those traumatic incidents landed in a soil that was already teeming with not-so-helpful ingredients. And they were habitual 
ingredients. And so when the trauma comes up again, so to speak, which again is already a presupposing notion, when it comes up again, it meets those same unhelpful habits. And it plays out um, uh, in, in the soil of, that un, un, of those unhelpful habits, and they uh, create uh, a, a really much more difficult soup. So what, which bit's the trauma, which bit's the pre-existing habit that was developed? So there's a lot to inquire into, and sometimes we're too quick, too sloppy, in saying either our trauma's just empty, don't look at the past, or just giving it some kind of um, inherent reality without looking carefully enough at at conditions. And it's exactly looking at conditions and how what we can do with conditions in the present, including insight ways of looking, including bringing other factors in. It's exactly that that's going to help. So how can I help in the present is, ends up being the same inquiry as what's, uh, what's inherently existent here. They go together because of the whole ways of looking approach. Because in the ways of looking approach, we're interested in what gives rise to uh, more suffering here, what locks suffering into place right now in this moment, and what decreases suffering. So the whole, um, the whole inquiry into ontology and into reality is totally connected with the inquiry into what's helpful with regard to my suffering. Sometimes people, um, again, have the idea of emptiness as being something very abstract or not really relevant to their life, or, uh, but it's really not. Another thing people um, sometimes, or it's tempting, very un- again, very understandably tempting to do, is to uh, equate... Uh, the understandings of emptiness with the understandings of quantum physics. Uh, so the understanding of the emptiness ways of looking uh, paradigm with the understanding of quantum physics. Um, so, again, this is very tempting. There's certainly some really, really interesting parallels, I think, and fruitful parallels. But I think we have to be a little careful here. Um, partly because... Physics as a discipline can change and uh, trends in, in uh, physics can change at any time. What, um, what Thomas Kuhn calls paradigms in physics can change at any time and then change back or etc. So we have to be a little careful that, uh, with, uh, with equating the two and then using quantum physics as a sort of... Um, our understanding of emptiness depends on quantum physics, or our belief in emptiness depends on quantum physics. I know I've talked about it in the past, and I think it's really interesting, but it's more wanting to use those understandings to really shake up and shake loose and challenge um, the kind of usual assumptions and beliefs about reality, which often boil down to about material reality and the way it must exist independent of the observer.
um, in a kind of uh, Descartian, Newtonian way, and really wanting to um, expose and shake up those uh, those assumptions and beliefs in response to what can often be, and even in the in the history of the Buddha Dharma, there's a there's a sense of the outrage um, at hearing um, emptiness teachings or em- uh, the conclusions that a practical expression of emptiness yields. So Einstein, um, as many of you might know, was very, very opposed to the whole uh, implications of quantum physics. This idea that um, the moon doesn't really exist uh, or the moon isn't really there until you look at it. Um, it's not there when we aren't looking. So that's absurd. That's kind. Of, that seems to be what quantum mechanics, quantum physics, is implying. And um, in various ways, over many years, he tried to expose the flaws in quantum physics. Um, but every time he failed. And at one point, he teamed up with two other guys, Podolsky and Rosen, and they came up with a kind of thought experiment that seemed to um, that seemed to really undermine the framework of quantum physics and this idea that things might not exist independently of our way of looking, of our observation. And then, after he died, yes, must be after he, uh, after he died a physicist called David Bell came up with um, a way that one might actually decide whether Einstein was right or Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen were right or whether quantum physics was right. And then I think after David Bell died, a guy, a French physicist called Alain Aspect, um, devised an experiment, was actually able to test it. And what it found was two it found two results that are kind of not really arguable with. One is that um, in some instances, non-locality is a fact of nature. Like, um, two particles uh, are somehow woven together. Um, uh, they can affect each other, or it seems they can affect each other um, across massive distances of space instantaneously, faster than the speed of light. In other words, that space isn't quite what it seems to be. But the second one, for our purposes, uh, interesting as that first one is, the second one, for our purposes, is that um, quantum particles do only become real, become only this or that, when we observe them. So this was a result um, of this experiment by our aspect. Quantum particles are actually only real when we observe them. And Einstein was really clinging to his preferred beliefs regarding reality, regarding nature, regarding the cosmos. Again, this is like, how passionate am I about um, wanting to go deep with these questions? And also, the importance of recognizing what is it that I want to be true? which I've talked about a lot before. Also in the, and I've said this before, but the, the, the Schrodinger wave equation is a, is a complex mathematical equation in abstract mathematical multidimensional space. 
and in a way it describes the uh, sh- what could we say the the way uh, it describes what we will see or the probability of what we will see when we uh, look in certain ways at at, uh, at subatomic particles. When we look, we see something. And dependent on how we look, we see this or that, a wave or a particle, etc. But the Schrodinger equation is kind of, depicts, if you like, what exists when we're not looking, when we're not observing. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not really something we could call real, in the sense that it's, it doesn't depict a thing that exists in time. As I said, it's an abstract mathematical equation in multidimensional space. It's as if there's a kind of indefiniteness of matter, an indeterminacy of matter before observation. So again, there are parallels here, because it's not saying... Um, there are parallels here to the ways of looking and emptiness understanding that I would like to offer. Um, it's not saying there is the complete non-existence of matter. Matter is a complete illusion. It's just a mental projection. Some spiritual teachings say that. There is no matter. Matter is just uh, purely mind. What the, the ways of looking and, and this emptiness approach and other approaches to emptiness um, stress much more is not that there's nothing there at all, there is no matter, but that it's dependent on the way of looking that it forms to be anything and what it forms and where it is and all that. So there's again a parallel between this ways of looking, understanding emptiness and certain quantum physics understandings, for example the Schrodinger equation. Matter is, uh, again, it's not that anything can arise because there's no way something is because the Schrodinger equation is essentially indeterminate, it just gives probability, probabilities, it doesn't then mean that anything can arise. And a, a, it was an electron in one moment, and then when I looked in the next moment, it was the Hollywood set of Mary Poppins, or a Boris Johnson speech, or the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, or whatever. It's not the case that anything can come from something. But matter is indeterminate, indefinite before observation. An object, a phenomenon in experience is indeterminate, indefinite. It's the observation, it's the looking, it's the relating to that makes it something. And dependent on how the way, is the way of looking in that moment is what we, what we experience. So there's parallels there uh, with quantum physics. I think in one of those Dharma seminars recently, maybe it was one on ontology, I can't remember, but um, the ontology is basic and unavoidable in life. Again, we're not talking, when we talk about ontology and emptiness, we're not talking about abstract philosophies. We're not talking about something that only is really relevant in microscopic, super-advanced physics or, or whatever. Um, 
ontology, views and beliefs about reality, are basic and completely unavoidable in life. As I said, you would have a very different response, a different kind of concern if your daughter reported um, when she came down for breakfast in the morning that there was a monster in her bed, under her bed in the night and was chasing her. You would have a very different concern uh, if you just thought that's a dream. Maybe you would be, maybe some of you would be concerned what it meant about her unconscious and whatever psychological problems she had. But it would be very different from the concern than if you actually thought there was a uh, some kind of monster there, or a bear, or a tiger, or a snake, or something. So ontology is just part of our life. In every moment, we're making decisions about what's real, what's not. It, it's woven into our perception of everything. That's why I said before, if you really practice and know how to practice the ways of looking, and get to the point where you can engage a way of looking that, that uh, holds something in attention and regards it as empty, and see what a vast, radical difference that makes to the experience of that thing, compared to just the normal way of looking, where there is the assumption of the reality of that thing. And that assumption of the reality is just normally woven in to our experience. There's always an ontology, an ontological conception. This is part of a larger point about there always being conception. There's always an ontology and an ontological conception woven into the perception of anything. But unless one has experienced um, holding in one's way of looking a different ontological conception, practicing that, practicing with the agility of that and seeing what it does, one probably doesn't even realize that, or one thinks it's, it's some, uh, one doesn't realize that ontology is woven into perception. But it's inevitable, and it brings with it, of course, uh, a hierarchy of value judgments. I mentioned this the other day in the talk at Guy House. Again, relating to your daughter reporting the monster under her bed. Our ontological assessment brings in a certain value judgments. What do I need to do? But in practice, the hierarchy of value judgments that goes with ontology is, is actually constitutive and active in and as practice. So, for example, um, in mindfulness practice, there's the idea communicated, the teaching communicated, that papancha and story and self are somehow not real, they're fabrications, they're less real than what we might um, encounter through uh, as bare sensation, or what is revealed with bare attention, with mindfulness or equanimity, etc. Or in Dzogchen and Mahamudra teachings, um, the nature of mind, which can be interpreted in all kinds of different ways and at different levels, uh, is real whereas this or that other thing is, is not real or less real. Or in Zen teachings, some Zen teachings, often what's, um, what we know through thinking and concepts is not real. So these value judgments, uh, ontological judgments, are wrapped up with value judgments, 
and they constitute and are active in and as practiced as practice they get reinforced um, by the teachings and sort of indirectly by a kind of even non-verbal rhetoric if we could even use such a phrase without much philosophical or psychological unpacking explaining, questioning, probing but it's there so that of course um, in um, let's say mindfulness teachings, um, the relationship with uh, image, imagination, the possible imaginal would be, well, that's, that's, um, that's not what's there in bare attention and mindfulness. It has a much lesser status, it's a much lower place in the hierarchy of things. Occasionally it might be helpful if a person gets stuck or, or it might be helpful in, for the arising of faith. You know, imagine the Buddha, or imagine this or that. Or um, if you just can't do it without mindfulness alone, as if mindfulness alone, that's, that's the, you know, the real practice. Real practitioners don't need this second best uh, use of the imagination, this unreal thing that's kind of for weaklings or people, or when you hit a hard spot, you just need a little extra help, a little... So all these kind of um, ontology is inevitable. It brings with it value judgments, not, not just reality judgments, is what ontology means. Those reality judgments involve or imply value judgments. And all that's wrapped, in, wrapped into practice, often in ways that, as I said, are communicated very, very strongly and repeatedly through different uh, streams of Dharma and different styles of teaching, but not with a lot of... Um, Real unpacking philosophically or psychologically. So we need to we need to be aware of that. I think the importance of ontology, the importance of asking into all this, will you know how we approach these questions and these explorations and inquiries into ontology will determine so much of what our practice is and what our practice delivers. What is legitimate and what opens for us. So for the Buddha, um, I would say he was very concerned with this. Again, it's maybe popular these days to say he wasn't interested in that at all, he wasn't a philosopher, da-da-da. But I would say he was very concerned. Um, There is, of course, his... uh, You know, some people say... um, there's only two suttas in the Pali Canon which address emptiness, and they've got emptiness in the title. It's the greater and shorter discourses on emptiness or something like that. One of which isn't really about emptiness in any sense at all. It's a strange, uh, strangely given title. Um, and then say any of this reading back of a kind of Mahayana version of em- Mahayana versions of emptiness um, is is not what the Buddha originally taught, but. That's just that's just a, again a little sloppy, a little lazy. So there's so many incidents one could point to in the Pali Canon. I mean, a lot of them are in seeing the freeze, but there's many, many. You know, when the Buddha Kachayana asked the Buddha what is right view, and he said, um, "What do you teach about right view?" And the Buddha says, "I teach uh, the middle way, the middle way between is and is not. That's the middle view. Most people assume is." 
it exists, it is, or it, it does not exist, it, it is not, for any, any phenomena. But I, the Buddha, teach the middle way, neither is nor is not. What does it mean? Well, it means the whole emptiness thing, and it takes a lot to unpack what he means by that, neither real nor not real, neither is nor is not. It takes a lot, but it's right there. And in the many, many explorations of dependent arising and dependent ceasing and dependent origination, there's a whole many explanations. It's right there. There's a case where Sariputta is talking to, I think, a monk called Mahakotita, and he tries to explain uh, dependent arising, and he tries to explain how consciousness depends on nama-rupa. Nama-rupa means... Um, not just body, but the perception of uh, forms and the perception perception itself and attention and contact and vedana and intention. And Sariputta explains uh, that depends on consciousness. Perception, vedana, depend on consciousness. And consciousness, Sariputta goes on to explain, depends on uh, intention Perception, attention, meaning. So perception depends on consciousness, consciousness depends on perception. Vedana depends on consciousness, consciousness depends on Vedana. And Mahakotika was like, excuse me, what? Of course, it's baffling. But he's pointed this mutual dependency is exactly what um, what we mean by uh, emptiness. These two things, let's say consciousness and perception, they're not two. But neither are they one. They're neither one nor two, they're empty, they're mutually empty, they're mutually dependent. So it's there, all, all the way, lots of places in the Pali Canon. And it's of course tied to, the Buddha was concerned with that, and it's very, an understanding of uh, ontology was very much tied to what he meant by liberation. It's there, right, his definition of right view. It's one of the definitions of right view. It's there completely in in what he pointed to as the most central insight on his night of awakening. This dependent arising, and particularly the mutual dependent arising of nama rupa and consciousness, of perception, vedana, etc., and consciousness. The mutual interpenetration, mutual inseparability, mutual dependence. This causes that, but that causes this at the same time. Dependent arising is the thing to understand, the thing that a liberated arahant understands, has penetrated. And similarly, um, the Buddha didn't just talk about the anatta of phenomena, that they're not me, not mine. He also uh, uses the word sunya, they're void. It means something different. They're void in themselves, they're empty in themselves. And he gives different analogies in terms of the aggregates and how they're empty of substance, empty of inherent existence. So it's totally there in the Pali Canon, um, if one looks for it, knows what to look for. But with regard to awakening and emptiness, I think we need to make a, a, another point, which I've alluded to several times um, recently, but I think I'd like to draw it out uh, a bit more. Someone was asking 
whether they just need to understand emptiness to be liberated, or whether there's a um, certain amount of psychological work that they need to do as well. Um, do I need to, uh, you know, resolve and understand um, my psychological stuff? What's interesting is um, we never seem to hear anything like that in the Pali Canon about people's um, self-judgment or their inner critic or their uh, incapacity at to sustain intimate romantic relationships or their inability to commit or their in, um, you know, their frustration at their own lack of self-expression or inauthenticity or anything like that. It seems there's no report of that kind of dukkha in the Pali Canon. It's also interestingly absent in... Um, for example, the teachings of Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta Maharaj. You just hear these teachings about emptiness or the nature of awareness or uh, that kind of thing. So why the absence? Is it that um, in the time of of the Buddha in India they just had better parenting? Is that is that what so people didn't have psychological issues? Or is it that um, the sense of self and the expectations of self and of relationship are very different now than they were in the time of the Buddha's India. And in terms of awakening and the self-view and penetrating the self-view in the first fetter, uh, of, of stream entry, we nowadays need and want and expect practices and realizations to address and uh, to decrease or even eradicate that kind of suffering. The suffering around self that comes from a certain set of expectations and a certain self-sense and a certain expectations of self and of relationship, we expect, need, want, practice and realization to address all that. So, I have a question. Do practices and realizations need to be different now? Or is it enough that we can just, uh, just work with the emptiness? For example, with Nisargadatta and Ramana and those people, they had very different socially constructed senses of self that they had to deal with than we do. Very different. Socially constructed senses of self they had to deal with um, in themselves and also in the issues brought to them by seekers and students. And on top of that, their role and status as um, kind of constructed by Indian spiritual customs with respect to the guru. There's a whole kind of way you are, a way you hang out with, a way you talk to the guru. There's a whole kind of 
um, relational paradigm there. Uh, they have a certain role and status, and it's, it's determined within a certain range how you hang out with them, what you do, what you ask them for, what you expect from them, what the social situation allows, and what their role and status um, determines. So that meant that they also didn't have to deal with or even encounter a lot of the self-burdens and self-expectations and shapes and relational dynamics and relational expectations that uh, most of us do. And we're expecting this one thing, this insight into emptiness, even if it's the emptiness of everything, to address what may be um, very different selves, different self-sense, different socially constructed self that we have nowadays in the West. Different sufferings, different challenges to address. I can think of, and probably many of you can think of, someone or people who seem to have had um, tremendous depth of practice in the past, whether it's jhanic, uh, samadhi and emptiness understanding, but they don't seem to have much capacity or skill with, let's say, personal intimacy and personal connection. Maybe our notion of awakening needs to involve more than just insight, more than just insight into emptiness. Maybe awakening also, or enlightenment or liberation, also implies certain skills with respect to the kinds of challenges um, that we have to address because of the society we live in and because of the way the self is constructed differently in in, in our society. So yes, emptiness. Yes, it's empty, but I still have to have a certain set of a certain set of skills. I have to be able, you know, if, if I realize that everything is empty, but I'm really insensitive in relationship, my capacity um, for intimacy, I just not don't seem to be able to meet people and navigate that territory um, uh, in terms of deep connection with people. Is that awakened? Am I satisfied with that? So it might be I do need to work on some of my psychological stuff, if we use that term broadly. And those kinds of skills, as well as the emptiness understanding and skill in emptiness practice, become a part of, or aspects of, a much larger thing called awakening. But the emptiness piece delivers a lot. You know, it really delivers a lot and it really opens up a lot even if it's not um, in itself a single, the single thing that we can rely on and hope that everything in our life gets taken care of. But it does open a lot of doors the deeper we go into it. So if we take it very deeply in practice, that the middle way of emptiness can, for example, open up the conceptual legitimacy and practice possibilities of 
flexible ways of looking at perceptions, for example, of particular divinities, not just universal sense of divinity and sacredness, of universal emptiness, but of particular divinities and particular sacrednesses that we um, go into with the soul-making practices. If I go deep enough in emptiness practice, it opens up the conceptual legitimacy for those um, and it opens up the practice possibilities as well for the flexibility of ways of looking and of perception uh, that perceive a particular divinity and not just universal divinity, particular sacrednesses and not just universal ones. And actually more broadly we could say that the realisation of deep and comprehensive emptiness really go deep, we've realised there is no ultimately true conceptual framework regarding conventional reality. There's no ultimately true way that we can explain the workings of conventional reality. Again, that doesn't equate to saying all conceptual frameworks uh, are equally true or valid. But there is no ultimately true conceptual framework regarding conventional reality. And that understanding comes out of emptiness going very, very deep and very wide. That then legitimizes and opens up the possibility of a, 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 a range and a flexibility of conceptual frameworks and ways of looking within uh, conceptual frameworks. It's not just ways of looking, but whole ideas or systems of thought. We can also move between them with the same ease and flexibility and agility and lightness of touch, lightness of holding, as we move between uh, ways of looking. This comes out deep practice of emptiness. And of course, that too is very relevant to soul-making dharma, soul-making practice. It's one of the things we emphasize quite a lot. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.